Welcome to KiteLine, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in the prison system and beyond. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before starting with this week's theme, we wanted to share some prison-related news and announcements. Because exonerations of the wrongly convicted are proliferating, efforts to regulate more tightly the use of jailhouse informants' testimony are gaining steam. New DNA testimony has exonerated many people wrongfully incarcerated on the basis of informants' lies. Several states have strengthened regulations on the use of such informants, whose credibility has always been questionable since they're motivated to have their sentences reduced. The new state rules include mandating pretrial hearings on whether prisoners' testimony should be permitted and requiring prosecutors to disclose any agreements with informants, plus their history of testifying in other cases. In Connecticut in July, Governor Ned Lamont signed a broad bill that will initiate the country's first statewide system to track the use of jailhouse informants, including any benefits they receive for their testimony. According to the Innocence Project, of the 365 people exonerated around the nation by DNA evidence, almost one in five was convicted partially by informants' lies. This week, we share the first part of an interview with Anastasia Schmid. Schmidt has appeared on KiteLine before, analyzing women's health care in the prison system. Now, she joins us on the other side of the walls, talking through her release and subsequent support, and the meaning of truth in light of trauma. After spending 18 years in Indiana prison, her case was recently overturned, due largely to her own tenacity. She spoke with us only two weeks after her release and shared valuable insights as to her time inside and her transition out. We'll hear more from her next week, but for now, here's Anastasia. My name is Anastasia, and who I am is a complex question. There is no one answer. There is no one way to frame that or express that. I think that's part of our problem with society is we're hell-bent on putting labels on people and things and circumstances and situations, and labels fall short. The totality of who I am will never be expressed in words, and maybe that's why I'm an artist. I think you spend time inside. Uh, Every day is a struggle in some way. Every day is a sense of loss. Uh, Grief and loss is the one thing that never ends in prison. Nothing is permanent. Nothing is stable. Every time you turn around, you're losing something, whether it's people or items or programs or opportunities, there's a constant loss. And so, you know, I think you spend every day thinking about freedom and what it's going to be like to be free again and really questioning if you are ever going to be free again. Um, And then what's life going to look like on the outside? And particularly, I think, for people like myself who did a very long time uh, in the carceral state, how different will life be coming out? You know, I we joke with people all the time saying it was going to be like the Flintstones going to the Jetsons. <laughs> I've been trapped on Gilligan's Island for 18 and a half years talking through a coconut. So, you know, what the hell is a cell phone? What does it do? Uh, what's that going to look like? You know, so I think there's a low level of anxiety or trepidation that people feel about this prospect of getting out after so much time has passed. 
And, um, you know, you're never really going to know until you're the person experiencing it. Of course, I've heard the experience of hundreds of men and women who have done time uh, from short time to long time. And I heard a lot of common things in that. Fears and anxieties and feeling uh, alienated and ostracized and uh, displaced and, you know, a lot of really negative things. You know, so I think that's kind of the underlying fear of any person getting out is, oh my God, am I going to experience those things too? And the irony for me was when I walked out that door of the county jail and stepped into freedom for the first time, it was a sense like I had just walked in the door, like no time had passed. Strange. I mean, you know, it's other than me trying to navigate technology now, it's like no time has passed. I didn't feel any of the things that my friends and people I knew had told me about over time. And I don't know. I mean, maybe it's premature. I'm only going on two weeks out now. Uh, maybe it just hasn't hit me yet. But the core of me doesn't think that that's the case. And so you know, I, I give you this background to segue into the question you're asking me, and I think that's key to why I don't feel the anxiety and I don't have all those negative things. My family and my support system are impeccable, absolutely impeccable. I have spent years connecting with people both inside and out, networking with people, staying as connected as humanly possible to my family, my friends, and my loved ones that I have come out to a world that has welcomed me with open arms and has been there for me with anything and everything I could have needed or thought to need. I mean, some people have come up with things that I never would have entertained the thought that maybe I'm going to need this. And there they were, ready and waiting, and here it is, and uh, welcome home. So uh, I think the greatest thing about being with family, friends, and loved ones again is unrestricted humanity. Prison robs you of humanity. They dehumanize you in every sense of the word and to a point the conditioning and the environment and the quote-unquote rules of the prison actually set people up to become non-human. It is not normal not to have human contact with other human beings. That is problematic. It's what psychologists would deem abnormal. If you were a person in the outside world and you had zero contact with other human beings, physically or otherwise, we would say there's something wrong with you. But in prison, that's the expected norm. So to come back to the free world and be able to just hold somebody's hand, to hug my daughter, to kiss my grandchild, to put my arms around my friends, to sit on the couch right next to somebody, just normal, everyday, basic human touch and human contact. It's the small things that matter, and it's the small things that are the big things that have made all the difference. These are the things you miss, that it's understanding, yes, I'm human. I was always human, but now I'm allowed to be human. I have realized now through lived experience um, with the entirety of my circumstance from the very beginning all the way through this process that what we are taught to believe 
the justice system is and what it's about and how it works and the purpose and the point of it, complete lies. None of what I was raised to believe proved to be true in reality or proved to be my experience. And there were so many days through this process and the horrors of the things that I lived through that I would just question, where am I? Where am I? What year is this? How dare you turn on the news and hear horror stories about foreign countries and terrorist type activity when, my God, this stuff is going on right here in this country, right underneath people's noses and they don't realize it. And so what I've come to know is that if any human being can be taken into custody for any reason, whether they are guilty or not guilty, guilt is irrelevant in this context, and they can be put on such an enormous cocktail of drugs to the point that they are incapacitated physically and mentally, run through the system in a state that they cannot defend themselves, that they are incapable of being their own defense or bringing things out to where other people are making any and all decisions for them. And then the worst of the worst things that could possibly happen to a person in the system happens because of that. And then you're put in prison and you spend this time in prison. And once you finally start to come back to some semblance of self, which was the case for me because I stopped taking the drugs, but let me state, is not the case for most. Most who go into the system and experience what I ex experienced never come out. They stay in that state. They stay drugged out of their minds literally until they die. They never come back. They're walking around the prison like zombies at best, and they just stay in that state until they perish. Nobody knows, nobody cares, nobody sees them. They're invisible and it doesn't matter. They will never be to a level that they can even attempt to try to fight or defend themselves or make some type of sense of what has happened and why. So I come back to a point of rational thinking and understanding and mortified by everything that had happened. What had happened in my life prior to get me to this point, what I had done and the infinite levels of harm that resulted because of that, and then what had happened to me through the system and what was continuing to happen. And I knew something had to be done to change these things because it's not just me and it wasn't just about me. I was surrounded by these people that were the living dead. I mean, there's just not a better way to put that. And so I began, you know, the long, difficult process of trying to obtain documentations and paperwork to figure out how and why did all of this happen and spent the next 13 years of my life being denied access. Now, attorneys had it and prosecutors had it and judges had it and what I later came to find out, even lay people had it. Common, everyday people could get on the internet and look up, at, at the very least, pieces of documentation about me and my life and what had happened, but I myself had no access and was not given it. And so there came another entire layer of, oh my God, the injustice. If these things are happening to me, how many others are they happening to? And the more I came to wellness and to understanding, 
the more I started reaching out and communicating with other people, both inside and outside, and I started finding that common story. One woman after another, after another, after another, after another, with these similar parallels and stories of how and why and what happened with the system in order to get wrongful conviction after wrongful conviction after wrongful conviction. But for so many, it had happened to a level and to a degree and in a time fashion that there was absolutely nothing those women could do about it, even when they did figure it out. Even when they did get to the point that they said, wait, this is wrong, it's too late. And the law's been written that way. It's been written and set up to where once you're in, you're not getting out. I should never have been able to do what I did in the federal court system according to the law and according to the way things happened. But, you know, uh, I joke now, maybe that's the one area that you're right when you called me crazy. I was crazy enough to continue to push and continue to fight and continue to try to do what everybody on the natural born planet told me was impossible. But um, I don't think there's any such thing as impossible. It's all about belief. What do you believe you can and cannot do? And uh, once upon a time, I didn't believe I could do anything. Today, I believe I can do everything. Truth is an interesting word. The truth in all regards is subjective. Whose truth? Whose truth are we talking about? Which reality are we talking about? I think the problem is that society is bombarded with a dominant narrative that is structured under very tight parameters to maintain power and control. Power and control over large groups of people, over systems, over institutions, over all types of things. And so the truth that you may think you are getting from any one of a number of sources out there is true, but only to a point. And in which way are we framing and through which lens are we telling that truth? What are the underliers behind how and why we shape and frame a story uh, the way we do? What's at stake? Who has something to lose and who has something to gain? These are the questions we need to ask. Why are we focusing repeatedly on violence and harm and trauma and never really looking at the flip side of that coin? And I think this is wholly problematic uh, with this country, with the, with the system. We are a reactive society, not a proactive society. Everybody wants to uh, react in kind of a, a knee-jerk response when something horrific has happened. And what happens is more horror, more violence, more harm. And it becomes a vicious circle, and we can't get out of it. It's this sticky, tangled web, and it's inescapable. So you are never going to repair trauma and harm by inflicting more trauma, more harm, more violence. It's an oxymoron. But through my years of research and the work that I've done and the experiences I've had through my life, I realized so much of this was absolutely set up that way on purpose. That's the whole point. 
The point is to never make it end. Because if it ends, then what, do we, what does that look like on the other side? What happens if we stop harming people and we really do heal ourselves, each other, society? What does it look like if we start approaching things through a level of love and compassion and understanding and forgiveness? My God, how scary is that? How scary is it if we no longer had to worry about violence everywhere we turned and the response to violence being more violence? And aren't we all guilty of it? Who is not guilty of it? Whether it's with their words or their actions or, shall I say, their failure to speak, their failure to act. And that is just as big as the person who directly commits an act or voices something. When you remain silent and you remain inactive in the face of harm and in the face of violence, you are every bit as culpable as the person actually inflicting it. And that's part of the problem. We're a society that wants to turn and look the other way. It's not my business. It's not my problem. What happens in the home should stay in the home. We can't worry about it. Um, it's not directly involving or affecting me, so, you know, who cares? Oh, that's something for those people over there, or, oh, well, you know, it makes sense when it's these people or those people. But harm is happening across the board. Harm and violence are not isolated to low socioeconomic people or uneducated people or third world people or people of color or trans people or, you know, any one of 101 different categories and labels we can put on where we say, sure, we expect to see violence there and sure, it's okay to turn the cheek when we see violence there. Violence is everywhere. Harm is everywhere. And sometimes that harm is the most nefarious and the most detrimental when it is being inflicted in the spaces and the places that we never think to look. And where don't we think to look? We don't think to look in these systems that we have put our lives under their control. We entrust them with our lives. We don't think that the very people who are supposed to be keeping us safe, the people we're supposed to turn to in a time of crisis or need, will be the very people that inflict even more harm on us. So, you know, these years... For me, first and foremost, it was me getting me back, figuring me out, dealing with a lifetime worth of trauma. How and why did I ever get to that point? How and why did I choose toxic people and toxic situations and continuously end up in places of harm and violence over and over and over again? Where did all that start? And so yes, generationally, uh, you know, none of this happens in a vacuum. No person is living some perfect, wonderful life somewhere and then all this horrible stuff happens. Uh, that's just not reality. I think it's a story we like to tell ourselves and each other that some horrific thing just happens out of the clear blue and it is completely and solely the fault of an individual and that is never the case. It's systematic it follows a pattern, it involves multiple people and sources, it is a series and a succession of circumstances and events and uh, situations that lead to these 
sins. Violence and harm is everybody's problem and everybody's responsibility. So I think we have to start base level with the self and saying, where am I responsible? Where am I culpable? What piece am I playing in this huge, nasty, tangled web that is perpetuating this cycle over and over again for my own life, for the people in my life, and then for society as a whole? Where does it start? Where is it coming from? And now what in the hell am I going to do about it to change it? I may not be able to change what you choose to do or fail to do, but damn it, I can choose what I do or fail to do. And that's where it's got to start. It starts with the individual. What change do you make in the here and now, every day, waking up saying, what do I do today to be the best me I can be and to live the best life I can live and to give the best I have to offer to whatever environment I'm in, whichever other human beings come into contact with me, with whatever my circumstances are. How do I do and be and become something better? And so for me, this has unfolded in multiple different ways, multiple different genres of productivity. It's come, like I said, first and foremost, at a base level with the self. Fearless, complete, total self-inquiry. I had to invite all my own demons to tea at the table. Let's sit down and let's unpack it. Let me look it dead in its eye and address it for what it is. And the miracle of this is that the horror loses its power over you. Once you get to the point that you can look at the ugliest of the ugly with yourself and face it, and then take the next leap of faith, of courage, to share that ugly truth with other human beings, it holds nothing over you anymore. I am no longer a captive of my own mind. And that's really the key. You know, I've worked with thousands of women over these years that are trauma survivors and uh, with other various issues. They were prisoners inside their own minds before they were ever prisoners in an actual building. And this is the case with all of society over these years, hundreds and hundreds of people that I've written to and communicated with, some of them were so much more imprisoned than I was when I was in prison. Freedom truly is a state of mind, a, a state of being, a state of spirit. And I think it takes some work to get there. Some of that work is pretty scary and that's why we don't do it. But here's what I've told all these people I've worked with over the years. If it didn't kill you then, it isn't going to kill you now. You survived. The fact that you are living and you are breathing and you are in the flesh and we are here together, you have indeed survived. That alone means it holds no power over you. And so we look at it and we deal with it, and we feel what we need to feel over it, and then we figure out, now what do I do with what I feel about this? Anger is an amazing tool if you learn to use it as that. That's the problem though. Let's go back to reactive knee-jerk society. People just explode and they lash out and hurt people hurting people. It's a cliche, but it's totally true. How do you learn to take the hurt and the pain 
and the anger and the upset and the frustration and use it as a seed to build and blossom something beautiful. It can happen. And so for me, that's happened through my art. It's happened through my writing. It's happened through my education. It's happened through my teaching. It's happened through my practice of yoga and so many other things. It's happened in day-to-day -day life, moving and walking. It's happened by extending my hand out to another human being who I see as hurting too. To say, hey man, we're not alone in this. You're not alone, I get it. I've been there, I've done that, there's something else. Let me help you get there. And that's the key. Learning to help ourselves, learning to help one another, learning to ask for help when we need it, and that's huge. That was such a problem for me once upon a time. I would not ask for help. I had been conditioned to think you were weak, there was something wrong with you, you shouldn't have to ask for help, you need to be strong, you need to be independent, you need to be all these things. And while that may be true to a point, we also need each other. And we need other things, and we need other people. And there's going to be things in life always that are too much that you're never going to be able to completely achieve on your own. You have to ask for help. And what I found is that help is readily available if you're willing to ask for it. If you're not getting help from the first source you go to, which happens, and this was another problem for me, I would ask somebody because I needed help, and they would tell me no or they were incapable, or they didn't want to, or whatever the case may be, and I would feel defeated and I would stop. And then even worse things would happen. So the key was, number one, finding the courage to ask for help. Number two, having further courage to continue to ask for help if I did not get the help I needed in the original sources I went to. And number three, every single time I went to a human being to ask for help in any regard, would always add in the disclaimer at the end, if it is not you or your organization or what you offer that can help me, will you please point me in the right direction? Can you please give me a referral? Can you please show me how to get to what it is I'm looking for? And that's where the miracle started happening. That's where true transformation came in. And that's what it's really all about. People helping other people, knowing because Man, we're all screwed up on some level. We all need something and somebody on one level. So what happens when we all come to the table together and we disregard our differences, because that doesn't really matter at the end of the day, and we look at, at the core, where are we the same? And where do we want the same things out of life? And what do I have to offer and what do you have to offer? Because when we all come to that table together, we realize that there is somebody else sitting at the table that has exactly what we need, and we have exactly what they need. And this is where true reciprocity comes in, true growth, true healing, true change. To me, that is the actual truth. That is what we mean with truth. Capital T, truth of who we are at the cores of our being and how we relate to one another. Not the story we tell ourselves, not the story we tell each other, not the story society is telling us, uh, building up some type of facade that is anything and everything but reality. Truth can be a very dangerous thing, though. One truth, the type of truth I am speaking of, rides 
against systems of power and control, it's very frightening and it's very devastating. But if we are ever to hope to truly end harm and violence, that's the truth we have to get to. This has been KiteLine. Anyone can reach us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. You can hear previous episodes of our show at wfhb.org forward slash KiteLine. For more information on the stories we air on KiteLine, check out kitelineradio.noblogs.org. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. KiteLine, WFHB, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the opinions expressed on the show. Please join us every Friday for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our community. Thank you for listening.